Hi, everybody. It's Friday and time to talk about the week's news. I'm here today with CityCast contributor Shiam Galyon and producer A.K. Al Moment. It is Friday, January 6th, 2023. I'm Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. All right. Shiam and A.K., let's go. Good morning. Good morning, guys. Hey. Shiam, what do you think the week's biggest story was? Uh, well, it's it's funny. Um, I think the week's biggest story is Texas is the future of America, which may not be news to most CityCast listeners, but there was this really interesting article in the Texas Observer. Mm-hmm. It was called Florida, Texas, and the Far-Right Axis. And um, I found it very interesting because it it told the story of of population and demographic changes and also mm-hmm. mainstays. And the thesis of it is that Texas and Florida are really like microcosms of the nation. We're just ahead. Well, we're, we're like a really good sample of what's happening in the nation. But mm-hmm. on top of that, Texas and Florida are each kind of moving. They don't ha- necessarily have the same trajectories. So there's this question of like, will the future of America be like Texas, which is more uh, like of a purple state potentially, or more of like a hard, deep crimson red? Um, one of the things that ties Texas and Florida together is uh, Governor Abbott and Governor DeSantis kind of really working in lockstep to kind of set the agenda for what far right politics. Uh, They seem to be jockeying to who can be the showiest, you know, Mm -hmm. the one who gets the most attention from Fox News, who's going to Mm -hmm. send the most immigrants on buses to places that aren't expecting them, things like that. Yes. And both of them are are, are really pushing the envelope. And as someone who came from the political world and, and moved back to Texas a few years ago, one thing that I noticed is that, um, it can be a tendency for people left of center to, to kind of claim radicalness or revolutionariness as like as things that are inherently left of center. Um, but they're really like neutral descriptors. And the politics of DeSantis and Abbott are very radical and they are pushing for a certain kind of revolution. Um, I'm in this... Um, signal group chat that talks about politics mm-hmm. around the world from people around the world. Uh-huh. And anytime someone makes a Texas joke, I'm like, hold up. <laughs> Tag me next time <laughs> in Wait. your crappy Texas joke. Yeah. Because we are really at the front lines of the change that's happening in this country. It's actually really ironic that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, like it was actually flipped. Florida was the purple state and Texas was the hard crimson state. And it's really kind of wild to watch them flip, especially with DeSantis essentially rolling through Florida as easily as he did. And Abbott looking a little shakier coming, coming at each election cycle. But it's, it's really interesting to watch each state kind of flip positions and it'll be interesting to see election cycles, national and local election cycles, kind of look at Texas from that Florida lens 
that we used to during like Bush or Al Gore, or the Al Gore periods and, and what that means and which places you want to go to. Cause how do you mean, you mean in terms of Texas being a swing state? Cause we're not there yet. We're not there yet, but it'd be interesting to watch democratic, po democratic, like election policy, like, like internal policy move towards kind of pushing for Texas more so than Florida. I think there was a sense post this midterm election, at least that like, yeah, the, the, the Republican party couldn't push this blue wave or whatever, the, the red wave never came across the entire nation, but it's pretty clear that Democrats are losing Florida at a faster pace than they expected to. And it'll be interesting to see if they shift their resources to focus on Texas, which uh, would be an, a really, a really interesting battleground to see. That's a really good point. AK, the article does actually get into the differences in the Latino populations between Texas and Florida and gives that as a reason um, for the different kind of trajectories that we're seeing. Um, in Florida, they tend to be uh, more conservative, older businessmen. Cubanos. It's really important that they're coming from Cuba. And, and it's that older generation of Cuba and Venezuela. But but yeah. Yes. And, yeah. Um, and um, in Texas, there's like a large proportion or a large part of the Latino population has is not able to vote yet. Um, and so they will be able to vote. So there's like mm -hmm. a youth a, a youth factor, a youth here. wave. They're yes. more likely to be Mexican American. They're also more likely to be rural than in Florida. I think. I, I'm just fascinated, and I I, I want a fine point discussion of the Latino vote because I don't think it's monolithic in any way. Um, okay, okay. What is your big story of the week? My biggest story is about the county election administrator Cliff Tatum's postmortem report about the Harris County election, mm -hmm. and I think the report points out like logistical issues with with the election, which is fair. Okay. Yeah. So let, just to recap, this mm -hmm. past election was kind of a nightmare, right? Or not the Somewhat. worst possible failure, but yeah. there were lines, there were people who were turned away and told to come back. Yeah. It, 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 it opened enough of a crack yeah. for Republicans to kind of roll back into their into their playbook of of casting this kind of image of doubt around the election. But the interesting part, which which the report says that those like irregularities that the that the Republican Party have have accused the elections of uh, are inconclusive in in a real and meaningful way. And actually, a lot of the solutions that the report was assessing was better training, uh, better better kind of systems of problem solving, like so uh, uh, ticket issues versus mm -hmm. solution time, and kind of shortening those inefficiencies. All that stuff is good and great. And I think that as we like move forward, because we've had two audit, we've had multiple audits during the election and we've had two reports happen within the span of the last election and this election. So Harris County has kind of been under a microscope. Yeah. I think Harris County does get unfair attention because we are a big source of democratic votes. Republicans are hacked off about it. Exactly. And for that reason, I think our elections have to be bulletproof. You know, they have to be perfect. They have got to be rock, rock solid. And this one was not. 
But here's the interesting part about this uh -huh. Houston Chronicle article that I was reading on the report. It seems that when they were trying to call um, uh, the election judges um, and the volunteers there, when they were trying to contact them, it seems like the report implies that they were being blocked by the Republican Party uh, in multiple cases, election judges being told to not say anything to the point where the Harris County Republican chair, uh, Cindy Siegel, had to come out publicly, deny the claim uh, and saying that when when we were telling our election judges, we were telling them, if you get the call, please cooperate. But then she casts her own doubt on it. And she says, she added that Republican precinct chairs may have discouraged election judges from talking to the county, but the party did not, which is, it's, I mean, they're the ones who are asking for these reports. They're the ones that are asking for as much transparency about what went down. So it is very odd that they don't have a concrete kind of missive to the rest of the party and everyone involved that like, hey, cooperate with this so we can prove that something might go on. Of course, yeah. post the report, Republicans have come out and said that they would discuss it in January during the the, uh, the legislative period and the Republicans are unhappy with it. Yeah, but like I also think if you're really trying to make this thing rock solid for the next election, which is really what you know, we should be worried about, you have to do a hard post-mortem. You've got to take a hard look at things that went wrong. And this report said it wasn't conclusive that anyone had been turned away from voting. And we were reading media reports. People were turned away. Why is that not conclusive? For those two reasons. One, election judges didn't give uh, uh, corroborating or really solid testimony. Some of no, them... but you can take the testimony of a voter, right? A voter knows whether they got to vote or not. That is true. So that is true. I... But it, it seems like one of the solutions that they proposed was a kind of a ticketing system that gives more details about what happened at the election locations themselves. So it's, it's just really interesting to see... Um, this report kind of come out and still um, not kind of close the book on the issue. Yeah. Yeah. I will be nervously waiting for the next election. So for me, the biggest story um, is a little bit personal. It is, can Southwest Airlines recover from its Christmas meltdown? And it's personal because my husband was one of the gazillion people whose flight got canceled. He got stuck in North Carolina. Um, this is a Houston story. You know, Southwest is based in Dallas, but Houstonians, like all Texans, tend to fly Southwest. We love a cheap ticket. We love a cheesy joke. But this meltdown, you know, may change my mind. It may make me a little more hesitant to book one of those flights out of hobby. You know, we're hearing that the pilot and flight attendants have been just warning for years that that ancient scheduling software was prone to melting down. And they didn't fix it. Lisa, could you tell us what happened for people who did not travel during the holidays mm -hmm. and were eating Chinese food in Galveston. 
<laughs> and not what reading the news. What actually did happen? Well, because yeah. I, I saw the headlines and I was like, is my faith being shaken in Southwest? <laughs> so please, yeah, tell us okay. what, what happened. So uh, there was a winter storm. I think, you know, if you remember the weather over the holidays, a big winter storm blew in. Um, we got a little bit here, but it was mainly uh, in the Northeast. And this affected all the airlines somewhat, but because Southwest uses this very fragile system um, of moving its crews around, its system crashed. They could not get the crews and the planes where they needed to be. So all the airlines had to cancel some of their flights. Southwest ended up canceling more than 70% of its flights, and it took days and days to dig out. Um, people had to fly other airlines. Southwest has said it will cover the additional travel costs. You know, people had to stay places overnight. They were sleeping in airports. Um, you know, my husband ended up finally managed to get a, you know, couple of days later, a flight to Dallas, and he rented a car to drive home. And, you know, this involved more than 10,000 flights. So you can imagine how many people were affected. That sounds so exhausting. It was I'm so glad exhausting. Your husband, yeah, I'm glad your yeah. husband eventually made it home safe. Yeah. yeah flying and, alone know. is like a very stressful experience. And then imagine just like not having that flight to go home anymore. Like Not that's... having the flight to go home and the chaos at the airports. Uh, Hobby declared an emergency. They brought in police in case that all these hundreds of people who were stuck there began rioting. There was no rioting, thank goodness. But it was a wreck. It was really a wreck. I used to think of Southwest as like the fun airline, you know, where people loved their work. And it feels like the joy has been drained out of it. So... I will be watching to see if they can lure us all back. All right, let's go on to stories that should have gotten more attention. Shiam, what do you think was an underrated story this week? So the story that I have for Undercovered is mm -hmm. comes from the Texas Tribune. Uh, the headline is, Two Texas Businessmen Pitch Trump on a Plan to over Overturn the 2020 Election. Oh, uh, The January 6th report reveals. And what the report details is that two... Texas businessmen who have close ties to Governor Rick Perry met with Trump a week after the 2020 election and presented him with this wild out there theory that state legislatures could overturn the election results. Oh, wow. So this is former Governor Rick Perry of Texas. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay. And it would be, yeah, so today would be the two year anniversary of the January 6th uh, insurrection. And I, I think tying into my major story um, really goes to show like how much this like radical fringe far right politics is organizing itself out of Texas. Um, and it's something that I would have liked to see covered and discussed more. Did you guys have any idea about this as you were hearing about January 6th? I didn't know that. Who are these two businessmen? Are they based in Houston? They're Austin area businessmen, uh -huh. uh, Morgan Worsler and John S. Robeson. That, yeah, those are not names I know. Yeah. Mm -mm. But I wouldn't be surprised from Rick Perry. Uh, Rick Perry was, was kind of a big fan of the 
Trump administration throughout it. So I wouldn't be surprised if he kind of had that personal relationship with Trump. It's also hard to tell who were inside of the Republican Party that were allies of it was always fascinating, like the lines where they all kind of walked in lockstep, but they were feuding. It's fascinating drama. The next Game of Thrones, really. So that's actually a good point um, about Governor Rick Perry, former Governor Rick Perry's affinity for Trump. I, I think he's actually served as the energy secretary secretary yeah secretary mm-hmm. of energy in the trump during the trump administration and what makes this story very interesting was that these two austin texas businessmen had a meeting in the oval office with trump to present their fringe theory and i i Let's just let's slow down on that. Just that image, that thought. Like, who gets the audience with with the president of the United States? There were some strange people getting in there. Yeah, but also, is- were they saying that places like Texas, which have Republican-controlled legislatures, might be willing to sign up to overturn the, the national election? Was that the like idea that they were boosting? I think they were looking for loopholes in the law. So even if it wasn't just Texas, they were like, oh, well, technically you know, with electors, uh, we can just choose whatever electors we want, even if the electors um, weren't the ones that were voted in or something like that. Um, But it also puts Rick Perry under the fire a bit because it's like, how do these two civilians, individual civilians get an audience with the president if it wasn't for Rick Perry kind of funneling them um, into the Oval Office? So that is something that I wish I had seen more of. All right. AK, what do you think should have gotten more attention this week? Mine is uh, not political. Uh, Mine is about how the art scene in Houston, uh, specifically the uh, our symphony, our opera, the ballet and the alley theater are actually doing very well compared to other art institutions uh, post-COVID. Specifically compared to New York City, right? I saw the Houston Chronicle story about that recently. Yeah. Yeah. But for me, the underrated part of it is Mm -hmm. even in the article from the Houston Chronicle, I feel like the underrated part that came out of it, and I think we should discuss more, is this idea of, of like not only preparedness, but like foresight to imagine like the possibility of like a variety of different ways you can approach a really difficult situation. In the article, the the Houston Grand Opera talks about how they planned for they planned for low ticket sales and low audience appearances for five to seven years post the pandemic, right? And that preparedness to build your shows out for the audience you have and then getting surprised is is a must be a really fulfilling feeling for the artists and the people that are involved it really makes your art feel like it is it is the thing that the institution is standing on and it's really cool but not just that there was a lot of foresight uh like for the Houston Symphony they really bought into virtual symphonies and they did a lot of virtual symphonies and didn't let go of the idea that like they should give up during that period of time. And for a lot of them, for 
specifically the ballet, they saw numbers that are higher, like as high as pre-Harvey numbers. So, I mean, my question was, is there something other than foresight playing in? Are Houston audiences simply dying to get back into it more than, say, New York? Because the thing that I saw that really struck me was that the Nutcracker, the Houston Ballet's Christmas production that is just classic, nobody's going because they want to see what hot new thing they're doing. The Nutcracker was posting its best numbers ever as far as audience. I think like what I got from the story, which is incredible, is that we need to stop thinking of art scenes and like and like how we build art in the city as this like this one trend. Like all of these institutions have lived for a very long time on the subscription model that like you buy a ticket for the whole season and you have to show up to every show. And I think a lot of them are starting to embrace that like their audiences are different from the other institute. Like the ballet audience is not, is not always going to be the same as the Houston operas or the symphonies and to a certain extent or the alley theater. And so they're embracing a lot of different ways of approaching uh, the Houston grand opera is accepting a la carte, like come to the shows. Like they've accepted that like a lot of people want to come to the show that's most exciting to them. Uh, the symphony is still very dependent on the subscriptions, but at least they reached out to those people and understood that like word of mouth is what sells the Houston symphony and really bringing your friends and your family to it is what does it for you. The Alley Theater is presenting a lot more interesting packages. And yes, while some are flopping, some are really, really successful. And they're seeing a lot of success from like these big event type of shows where you can bring the whole family, you can bring your friends, you can recommend it. And maybe those big event shows like the Christmas Carol can funnel people to the smaller shows if you promote them properly. And so it does seem like Everyone has to approach how they maintain their audience and how to bring people out of home and how to compete with Netflix, HBO Max, any of those streaming services, sitting at home and eating Chinese food. I mean, what I worry about with this trend toward, you know, the a la carte tickets, you're not buying into, say, the alley's whole season or the opera's whole season, is that you're going to go only for the blockbusters. You're going to go for the high art equivalent of a Marvel superhero movie. And you're not going to get as much of the smaller works that, you know, you won't have people going to the alley just to see what the alley is doing as frequently. And I think, and I genuinely think that this is like a moment for the alley and kind of those places to consider like how they can reach out to newer audiences. I mean, a lot of these, like a lot of the things that they approached in the article, it seems like it's really cool. A lot of the audiences that are going to these places that have been older and of one particular complexion are getting more diverse now. And it's really cool to watch that like a lot of, and they're willing to take the risk on a lot of those shows. Like, like there's a couple of really controversial and like, like really risque showings that the opera and the ballet and the alley theater are taking and like really big risks. Even the symphony is like trying to go for like a lot more, a, a different conception of like what what one of their showings could be. And it's really interesting. It's really fascinating to see this kind of unique off the wall branding that these like seminal institutions that have been here for 75, 80 years. And now they're having to think in this like somewhat like guerrilla mentality. Like they have to like 
get into viral marketing and they have to get into all of these like newer conceptions. It's, they're not saying it's not difficult, but learning is hard. Building new habits is really hard. And I think it's a worthwhile endeavor to engage with the art on itself and not like, hey, we're putting this show, take it or leave it. Like, it's cool. I like it. All right. Shiam, what has made you happy this week? What is your moment of joy? Well, first I want to ask you guys, have either of you ever ridden your bikes on Houston streets? Oh, yeah. it wasn't pretty. Yeah, but my bike is broken now, but yes. Oh, you have? Oh, I so I've never, I've never, I've been too afraid. Um, yeah. But I, uh, yesterday it was uh, gorgeous outside and I took my bike on a ride on uh, specific bike paths. And I went from the museum district to Eleanor Tinsley Park. Oh, all on, all on a dedicated bike path. Protected bike uh, paths. Yes. yes. And I was like, wow, I, I could live my um, cyclist dreams here in in this little, <laughs> I could just keep doing this loop. <laughs> loop. Um, you weren't yeah, once in nice. fear for your life. You did not Ex once exactly. have a near miss with a car. Nobody buzzed too close to you. I mean, I had my helmet ready. I was uh -huh. checking all angles at all times, but I felt pretty safe. Um, oh, what about y'all? What are what are y'all's fun stories for this week? Okay. Mine is a little weird. Mine is a little petty. Uh, I'm a huge believer in that we should return our uh, the stolen art back to its uh, home countries. And I'm super excited that uh, that the the green sarcophagus that has apparently been kept without a lot of people knowing at the Museum of Natural Sciences uh, it got caught and and it's being sent back to Egypt. It's actually just arrived in Egypt. So I'm really happy about that. Bring back the lost art, like give it back to its people. Like that's that that made me really happy in a really petty way. So I I saw that and that also made me happy. And I'm and I that's a that's a function of homeland security. And I'm like, <laughs> it is. I and I'm like, I'm like, uh -huh. hey, this decolonial, this giving back of, I'm all for this homeland yes. security repatriating yes. stolen art. Please, yes. My moment of joy is also about art, but it's it's. It's actual joy about art. Um, I think that Houston artists often don't get their due. And I also think that in the art world, everything often has to be very heavy and serious and depressing to be taken seriously. And so this week I was at the Manil Collection, which I love. And on in their hallway, they just have a sort of standing display of art that is in that fabulous collection. And on the walls, there's a collection of still lives from, you know, various points uh, in art history, throughout art history, from different countries, different time periods. All these depictions of domestic life, you know, things people eat, flowers on the table. And in front of that, there's this enormous, you know, hundreds of years old wooden table. It looks like something out of Game of Thrones. And on top of that table is like a little two-foot-high sculpture. It's called Flowers. It's made out of rusty metal pieces that look like they came off a tractor or something. They were all welded together. It's cute. It's funny. It's by a Houston artist named Jim Love, who was always cracking art jokes in his sculptures. You know, he's the guy who made the giant red jack. 
that's, you know, between the Manila parking lot and the museum. And that flower, you know, on that table is a still life, you know, and it's in front of all those other, you know, more classic, more, you know, weighty still lifes. And it just made me very happy. It was funny right there. The Manila was making a joke, you know, with a sculptor who makes jokes. And it just cracked me up a little bit right there. I'm going to ride my bike to go see it. Ah, that would be an excellent afternoon. (laughs) And when I'm there, I'm going to let the Manila staff know about the sarcophagus that was returned to Egypt. (laughs) I'm going to combine all of our fun stories into one. Please return all stolen art back to its people, please. All right, y'all. This has been fun. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Lisa. That was Shiam Gallium and A.K. Al Moman. That is it for our show today. Our content director is Will Fulton. Our lead producer, Dina Kisba, is back from parental leave. Our producers are Carleon Jones and A.K. Al Moman. Brooke Lewis edits our newsletter, A Houston. Our theme music is by Feral Gibbs and his band, All the Kimonos. And I am your host, Lisa Gray. We will be back on Monday. Talk with you then. It is Friday, January 6th, 2021. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. 